Welcome to Newsworthy with Norrisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. All right, friends, welcome back to the show. Today we have our old buddy, A.J. Swoboda, from the land of hippies and, and coffee, Portland. <laughs> welcome. Hey, it's delightful to be with you today. It is. I don't know what it is about you, AJ, Dr. AJ Swoboda, but I feel like you bring out a lot of sarcasm in me. Mm. Do you have that effect on a lot of people, or do you think it's just me? You know, um, wisdom is proved right by all her children. I suspect that you know sarcasm because, Luke, it lives in you. It's in your bones. It, it's mm-hmm. interesting, sarcasm. Do you know what sarcasm actually means? What does it mean, Dr. Swoboda? <clears throat> Sarcasm, sarks, flesh, asm, ripping. It literally means mm-hmm. flesh ripping. <laughs> really? It means flesh ripping. Really? <clears throat> I, That's weird because whenever Paul uses the word sarks, it's always in a negative connotation. Mm, I, I mm, think it should be uh, mm. somachasm because it's more like body rich, like it's multiplying the body mm. with laughter and joy. That's how I understand sarcasm. Do you think. Th- no? I think um, I think that there are moments in my life where I'm sarcastic, and there are moments when I'm not. But mm-hmm. I think I think Jesus loves me all the same. Good, good. Well, this I... is a very awkward beginning to this podcast. I'm willing oh, to continue, no. but but it's awkward. No, this is not the most awkward beginning to a podcast. Even you and I have done. Mm. This is this is normal. I think this is good. Okay. Um, so, uh, last time we talked, we were talking about your previous book. Um, remind me of the title of that one? It was called A Glorious Dark. A Glorious Dark, exactly. And so, in A Glorious Dark, you make a reference to like, how to determine the will of God, mm-hmm. and it was some, some in, enlightening stuff in there. It was really good. I, I really did like it. Um, you, you mentioned, though, when you got married to your wife, you never heard the voice of God. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in this book, you make a reference that uh, a Christian grows most when they're stuck in prison, and you say a family can be our prison cell. And so putting those two things together, I'm just wondering, like, are you still married? Like, how's the marriage doing? <laughs> yeah, that's a great, that's a hard, hard-hitting question, Luke. You've clearly done your homework. My marriage is, is doing quite well. Thanks for asking. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I, uh, with... Reference to uh, my previous book, The, the Will of God, and, and this current book, which thanks for bringing up my current book, the book called The Dusty Ones. Oh, we'll and get to a, the Dusty Ones. And it's about wandering and how important wandering is. Okay, okay. Is. We'll, get to, we'll get to the Dusty Ones. My marriage we'll is doing quite well. I've been mm-hmm. married now for 12 years, mm-hmm. and I'm thankful for my wife and my four-year-old child and my three emotionally unstable chickens. I'm thankful for all of them, and Mm -hmm. they are a gift from God to me. When you live in Portland, is there a requirement for how many chickens you're supposed to have? Because having three chickens seems like it's required. True, false. You aren't required to have chickens, but you you are... allowed to eat chickens unless they've been named so there's there ha- mm. they have to have some kind of identity uh, yeah. um, and you are not allowed to have more than three chickens but nobody really respects those 
those kinds of commitments. We all kind of do whatever we want to do. Hmm. Now, I noticed a sign behind you that says, keep Austin weird. Yes. Is that, is, is that true? Okay. You know, Portland, we ripped off, we, we stole that from you. We have the, the keep Portland weird thing here. You know that, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's, Which is, um... It's interesting. Portland, uh, that, that's the kind of authenticity that Portland has. We're, we're keeping it weird the way Austin is. We're stealing. Our weirdness is plagiarized weirdness. Yeah. It's weird to say authentic when you clearly just acknowledge that you ripped off a slogan yeah. from a different town. It is, it is odd. We are weird like everyone else. Yeah. Well, that's true. I mean, you, I mean obviously, Portlandia is a, pretty much a, an excellent biopic on what life in your, your town is like. Mm. And so weird is a very fitting descriptor for you. Yep. Um, it's funny I mean, to me. When it, whenever somebody describes a Roman Catholic, they always describe themselves a Roman Catholic as devout and a Southern Baptist as staunch. It's, th- those are like the descriptors mm. that people can... And whenever somebody describes Portland, the word weird comes up. But I don't suspect that we are as weird as we wished we were. Hmm. Why do you think your town wants to be so weird? What does it say about the people who live there? Well, if you're actually asking me a serious question, I think that there is, is a, almost a theological commitment to not conforming, a non-conform. Hmm. We, we do everything we can do to not fit in the mold of, uh, of, of what has been expected of us, which is probably why Christianity, evangelical Christianity, really struggles in a place like Portland, because it does describe a way of understanding truth that we are called to fit into, that we can't fit it into our own life. There's actually, I think there's two narratives going on. There's a narrative that says, right, truth is within ourselves and we're, our job is to self-discover, which I would say is kind of the Portland understanding of truth. Truth is within you, find it. And mm-hmm. then there's kind of the, the Christian understanding, which says truth is beyond you and it's your job to integrate your life into that truth. And mm-hmm. so in, in a lot of sense, it does become about conformity. And I, I think Portland rejects any notions of conformity other than the ones it's created for itself. Interesting. Interesting. Hmm. Good to know. So it does want to fit in the mold. That makes sense. I I want to put you in the mold of a Calvinist, but mm. I don't know. Like you made a comment in the book about you know universalism and Calvinism, how they both kind of rub you the wrong mm. way. Um, but I, I and I know you're Foursquare, like that's your you know theological tradition that you I'm come a, from. I'm a, I'm a Christian who happens to be in Foursquare. Yes. Excuse me. Uh, well, I am a podcaster who happens to be in my office right now. Um, do you? So, do you think it'd be fair for me to put you in that mold? Am I allowed to do that? Because in my head, mm. you are. I don't know what mold you're talking about. Uh, as, in terms of Foursquare, no, the Calvinism thing. Oh yeah, you know, in my book, I, I talk about <clears throat> this theme of 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 God's complete willingness in the Bible to let human beings be idiots. It, it mm-hmm. shocks me from the beginning of the Bible to the very end. God's total willingness to let us just jack up our own lives and the mm-hmm. world. Uh, it seems to be this theme that comes up over and over and over again. And, and there is no, um, the, in my opinion, I, I don't think that there's a way around this idea that God seems to um, a- allow us to if we want to, to completely destroy our lives, but also gives us this call to come and follow him. And I think anything 
that undermines this this call of God on people to come to him um, which in many I, dear friends were Calvinists who who would say that that ultimately it is not an act of one's will to come to the living God um, in the same way that a universalist would say that it's not an uh, that, that one is forced into a love of God and I think both don't take into account the seriousness of um, this life that God has called us to live into. So whatever mold you want to put me in, I don't really care. I love Jesus and I love the Bible, but I think that we're all called by him to come and love him as we are, as from wherever we are. So I'll take that as a no, which is good. And I'm, You're I'm asking happy. me if I'm a Calvinist. I am a Christian. Mm-hmm. I love John Calvin. I've read John Calvin for two decades. Um, mm. Calvin okay. has been manipulated many respects by a lot of people, but mm-hmm. so has Arminius. Mm-hmm. Yep, not as much as Servetus was manipulated, though, let's be honest. Because um, <laughs> he was killed. Zing! Yes. Okay, now, um, okay, let's talk about the book. It's entitled The Dusty Ones, which uh, you connect to a Hebrew word um, that, it, say the Hebrew word for us. I took the word is Hebrew. Hapiru. Yeah, there we go. Meaning dusty ones, and uh, which is referred to the uh, Israelites, correct? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. Now, they so also... It's, it's believed that the word Hapiru and the word Hebrew are actually connected. They're connected. Now, Israelites were also known as the ones who would wrestle with God. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. let me tell you a story. Um, there was a guy that I wrestled with in my high school wrestling team. His name was Dusty. His last name was Lane. Dusty Lane. Do you want to know what he lived on? His house was right off a dusty lane. That's a true story. None of that is sarcat 100% honest. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Would you like to see if maybe the second print of this book, you get a picture of him on the cover? Because he is. You know, my best. publisher, this Who's is my, publisher? my third book with this publisher. Baker. They're a very open minded press. Okay. I, I'm sure that they'd be open to it. Okay. Okay. All right. So let me tell you one of the, the things. The topic I'm... of my, my next my next book is called "The Purpose Driven Velvet Check of Jabez Like Jazz Wins," which really is kind of a culmination of what I believe to be a lot of themes in mm-hmm. contemporary evangelical thought. Really, that book sounds really good. Yep. And then I'm going to write a book called "The Shack," which is actually a, a biography about Shaquille O'Neal, um, which really is going to draw out sort of the, the faith elements of his life. Yeah. I think will have yeah. uh, quite an impact on. Yeah. I think that chapter you're going to do about biological father who left me in the cold when I was a few months old, but I thought a child <laughs> was greater than gold, but I guess not. That one I think will be really enlightening. So good luck with that. Mm. Um, that was a, a reference for all those people who are big fans of Shaq's rap album from 91. Mm. You're welcome. So mm. let me tell you what I like about you. What I like about y- your description of faith is that you don't seem to like overpromise stuff, which mm. is a pet peeve of mine. Like I kind of, it rubs me the wrong way when people overpromise stuff. Like you talk about faith that it has a limp in it, and like that legitimizes it. You talk, you know, Gloria Stark. You talk about the Friday and the Saturday experience of faith, and you legitimize the struggle and the adversity that people go through. And this one, you're encouraging like that wandering. It's part of the spiritual journey, right? Well, <clears throat> Absolutely. Okay, yeah. so if you're not over-promising, and like, okay, if you follow Jesus, then you'll get your best life now, and if you pray the prayer of Jabez, then God will increase your territory and give you everything you want. Okay, 
What so as someone who articulates faith in a way that makes sense of the struggle of humanity, what is what is the good news for you? Mm. What do you, if someone mm. says, okay, well, okay, I want to be a part of your your religion, um, I, I want to conform to this mold, mm. but what's the good news in it? Yeah, you know, I, that's a that's a really good question. What I think probably, Luke, if I was to offer one critique of my own book, if I was to give my own work. Uh, an Amazon review, I think one of my greatest criticisms is that I tend to over-discuss the difficult parts of of faith. I always have. Why do you think you do that? And I think because I'm overreacting against all the kinds of... um, all the kinds of Christianity, which ultimately overpromise, and I, and I think is driving so many people away from the church. So I think I'm probably overreacting hmm. um, in many respects. <clears throat> I don't. I, I, maybe this is a good way to say it. The good news is <clears throat> that Jesus um, died on the cross, resurrected from the grave, that we might have an eternal life, and that would be life now and life in the future, and. There are times in our obedience to God when the reward is simply that we are obedient. Mm-hmm. Meaning the good news is <clears throat> there, there is simply a reward in being in tune with what God desires. And that we, we want, well, I want to know what, what I'm going to get. What's the gig for me? What do I get out of it? And I, I wonder why isn't it just enough? Why isn't it just enough? to be at peace with God. Isn't that a reward enough? Isn't yeah. that, isn't that the good news enough? I mean, yeah. the whole, we, we have such a, con, a consumeristic, what am I going to get out of it mentality of faith that we only do stuff as long as it, it gets something for me that I want. And that to me is why our marriages are falling apart. It's why so many, all of our commitments are falling apart is because it's, we're wondering, what am I going to get out of it? It's called, you know, if I was to say to God, God, I'll follow you and I'll love you and I'll, I'll do da, 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 da. As long as I get the white picket fence, the wife that loves me, the kid that goes to Bible clubs, da, 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 da. That friends, that's not a mirror. That's not a marriage. That's a prenuptial agreement. That's me saying, God, I'll love you as long as I get what I want out of it. That's not marriage. Yeah, that's a prenuptial agreement. Yeah. And so ultimately, I do think, Luke, that I'm probably overcorrecting a form of Christianity that has promised stuff that God never promises in the Bible. Yeah, well, that might be why I like your work, because I tend to do the same thing, and I struggle to to go, to use the metaphor from your last book, to, to Sunday. Like, I want to stay Friday, Saturday, because I feel like people aren't parking there enough. And so everyone just wants to rush to Sunday. And so they don't get the full gamut of the Christian experience. And therefore, I, I think people are going, like you said, people are going to be disappointed because we overpromise something that we can't always deliver. So I, I, I appreciate that. I appreciate your impulse to do that. And I completely get it. Um, so obviously part of the good news is hope. And I love your definition of hope. You say hope isn't denial. Hope is taking in your real life situation and finding God smack dab in the in the midst of it hope is not denying reality so if someone is trying to figure out what hope looks like smack dab in the midst of their reality the real life situation what would you do to point them in that direction so they could see hope Mm. yeah you know a lot of the language about that you're actually getting into this this area right of 
doctrine what I call eschatology, which is the study of end times. And really, our hope is connected to the end times or, or the beginning of times. Mm-hmm. Our hope is connected to the future and what God is going to the inbreaking of God into the world. And the whole theme of the New Testament, in my opinion, is that people lived in hope in that they lived in light of the fact that Jesus was returning. They lived in the in the light of Jesus's soon return. It, it would be the same. We all remember when we were kids and our parents, you know, had a date night or something and they went to went off uh, and we had a babysitter and we knew when our parents was going to we're going to come back. And so we trashed the place until we you know, they came back and then we clean up. We lived in light of knowing their return. I think hope, biblical hope, is living our life in the constant light of Jesus's pressing perusia, his return. Um, unfortunately, Luke, Christians for the longest time have interpreted hope as a reason to abandon this world. That we, because we hope in going to heaven, we abandon the realities of this world. And that is a dangerous kind of hope. That is not hopefulness. That's sentimentalism. Mm-hmm. That's sticking our heads in the ground and ignoring the reality around us. Biblical hope, living now in the light of Jesus' return, gives us the reason to act here and now. It was Martin Luther who said, if I knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow, I would still plant an apple tree today. That is hope. Hope is in light of knowing what is coming, yet acting today in light of that truth. That is a that is hopefulness. That gives us all hope. I do a lot of environmental work, Luke. And the one thing that I'm not finding in the environmental community, I'm finding a bunch of environmentalists that are super depressed. They, and the one thing that they don't have is hope hmm. because there there's no context for the, the promised future. But we have that. We have a promised future. And because of that promised future, we can live and act faithfully today. Um, Hope is not a hall pass for social laziness. Hope is actually the reason that we act hmm. today. I like that. Hope is not a hall pass for social laziness. That's good. It's mm. good. Okay. So, so hope, that's what it looks like for you. That's good. Um, and I think that's the kind of message that um, a lot of people want to hear. You're a pastor. People love hearing that message of hope. That's, that, I think. Well, I don't know if they want to hear that, Luke. I really? think you might be wrong because that actually means that we've got to act. Um, I don't want to say what people want to hear. I mean, that's the prophet said, peace, peace, but there wasn't any. Hope is not, um, I don't want to soothe people over with this futurist idea of, of this, this hope of the future and we don't have to act today. We have to act today because of what we know. And if we don't act, then we don't truly believe it. Mm-hmm. It's actually very, very painful to be hopeful because you have to get off your butt and do something. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Maybe, maybe, maybe your listeners don't like doing anything. I, I think Easy. that they probably do. Easy. I'm sure that they do. Yeah, there you go. They're not going to buy your book if you offend them. Okay, <laughs> so my listeners, of course, my friends, they they act, they do things, right? They good, they hear the good. message of hope. They want to go there. They're on board with it. They're doing it already. Now, one thing that you say most people don't want to hear is a preacher, a pastor. Uh, using the spray, uh, using their own wandering experiences mm. as mm. an area in mm. which they teach from, mm. because we want celebrities, not broken servants. Mm. Okay, so why do you think people don't want to hear their leader getting up and hearing from him or her talk about their wandering experiences? Mm-hmm. 
Well, there's probably two responses to that. The first is we don't want to hear about the brokenness from our leaders because ultimately uh, we have a philosophical way of understanding the world that we can only trust a truth as long as it comes through a, a medium that has proved to be trustworthy. Meaning Ooh, if, if, if I, if I'm pastored by somebody and that pastor makes a moral, a moral decision that is undermines their ministry, then we question everything that they said, mm -hmm. which is really interesting. The Bible doesn't actually allow us to do that because the Bible, every hero in the Bible uh, were morally the most corrupt and broken people in the world. I mean, and there's no religious book in the, in the world that's more honest about the downfalls of its heroes than the Bible. But as Americans, we don't, we don't really have the ability to receive truth through broken sources. And I think secondly is if the preacher is as honest about their sinfulness and brokenness of wandering experiences as they should be, then that, then things get real, then things get real. And, and that's scary because when he or she gets real, then I have to start getting real. In my last book, A Glory Stark, I talk about a struggle that I had with alcohol for a season mm -hmm. of time. And <clears throat> over the course of the last two years, I've been very honest with my church about that struggle. And what I have found has been people are totally comfortable with me talking about my struggle which I've been sober now for almost, I haven't had a drink for almost five years. But when I, when I talk about that with people, people are completely fine as long, if, if it's recent, then people are really uncomfortable with it. And people will often say, wow, that just happened like two years ago, five years ago. People are completely fine with our wandering, broken experiences as long as they happened like two decades ago. Mm -hmm. But if they happened just a couple weeks ago or a couple months ago, <gasps> there's something scary about the in-processness of somebody's wandering experience. Hmm. And I think it's so important, it's critical for a preacher to not just talk about their sinful stuff that happened two decades ago, but that they're honest about the stuff that they're walking through now. Not everything. There are things to not share. I'm not saying that somebody should get up and say on Sunday morning that they're dealing with pornography this week. That's, that distracts 100% from what they're trying to say. But we should stop talking about our wandering experiences as though we only wandered two decades ago. We all know that's not true. Yeah. We know that's not true. Okay, so what do we do to re-examine this ideology that says if someone who's flawed says something, therefore what they said read, was flawed. By the way, read Spurgeon. Sorry to interrupt you. Read Spurgeon's sermons. Spurgeon like was relentlessly against himself. He preached against his own sinfulness all the time. He talked about stuff from the pulpit. If he was to talk about it today from the pulpit, would lose his, lose his credentials in just about any denomination. Hmm. Um, and I think that's why people were drawn to him, because the guy was relentlessly honest about where he was at. That is why AA works the way it works, because it forces you to get honest with yourself and the people around you. As, as long as we have a Christianity that's a song and show from the front, friends, as long as we have that kind of Christianity, people are going to put on a song and show back. Okay. If we want to move past that, we have to explain it to people. We have to get people on board. You can't just get up and say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm, oh, I used alcohol to medicate my depression yes, last weekend. Yes, you know? yes, uh, yes. What, I agree. You can't do that. Yeah, nor did I. Uh, but how, like, what are the steps? What do you think you do to help people imagine that sort of Christianity? I think uh, every, every <laughs> well, 
I may get complete pushback from this, but I think every every preacher, every pastor um, needs a counselor or needs a spiritual director. I I have I agree a, with that. I could I couldn't survive with without them. Um, that is the first step to honesty is having a, a safe place with somebody else who loves Jesus to be able to talk about what's really going on in your life. So the theory um, is if you, if you're a pastor and you're not practicing this yourself, then you correct. can't yep. can't do it on the stage. Yep. And I can Eugene Peterson has this section in one of his books under the unpredictable plan. He says the greatest hypocrisy of the evangelical world is that we have evangelical pastors who demand that everyone follows but they themselves are unwilling to to follow. And for us to demand a church to follow us, but us being willing to be accountable to somebody else, friends, is total hypocrisy. That's good. That's good. Yeah, uh, everyone who listens to this more than one time has probably heard me talk about how much I think it's important to have a counselor, therapist, spiritual director, someone like that, and it's been helpful for me. And one of the things you say is that this whole like celebrity Christianity thing, uh, it's not just people in the seat's fault. It's everyone's fault. Like, we're all somewhat complicit in yes. this. And one of the ways I think yes. people on the stage are complicit is the way that we tell our stories. And you touched on something that yes. is a big hang-up for me, is you say, when I am the hero in every story I tell, I am most certainly proclaiming a false gospel. And I have mm. a huge hang-up on telling a story in mm. which I'm the hero mm. on the stage. And I... No, it's so... Yes. Yeah, great point. You have to be the hero sometime. I mean, it's okay to be a hero every once in a while. But when every one of our stories is about our own heroic acts, that's very problematic. My friend Tony Criz, uh, f- famously the known cruiser. as uh, Tony the Beat Poet, who uh, lives here in Portland, he relentlessly beats this into my mind, a preacher. And that, you know, if every one of my stories makes me out to be the hero, then I am preaching the false messiah. Hmm. And that, I think that is, I think that that is fundamentally core to being a good storyteller is that we know how to tell stories where we're actually the ones that don't own the heroes, that, 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 that other people um, play the role of the, the protagonist. If we're always the protagonist, man, that is the ultimate antagonism to the gospel. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I completely agree. It, and it creates this celebrity culture in which every time you hear that story, you start to think, oh, they're just like that off the stage. And, and you see the best mm. of them on the stage. You hear them when they're mm. polished and cleaned up and they've got everything uh, manuscripted in town to the movements and the things they're saying. So everything looks like they're... It, it, it's like when you hear an actor... Um, I heard someone critique about an actor when they were doing an interview and they sound like an idiot and they go, they don't sound anything at all like they sound like on, on a movie because mm. on a movie they have people writing them lines and they've taken plenty of time to prepare that and our stories perpetuate that sort of overly gloss thing. Yeah, love, I love that. All right, so let's talk about, um, you have some stuff on creativity, which you don't seem to be a big fan of creativity. Now, you, you say, okay, let me That's read you this quote. True. You say that people, your formal training is in biblical studies and theology. Uh, you want people to know you have a PhD, and you do. And you say, often biblical scholars and theologians write with the creative juices akin to a bag of oats, which I guess that's a Portland <laughs> metaphor for being not creative. You say Christian history has a word for creative theologians, heretics, which is interesting. <laughs> um, Henry Nouwen's creative illustration of a wounded healer. Uh, I don't know if that makes him a heretic. Your Lord and Savior, John Piper. That's an illustration, when he's, brother. That's not a new truth. Yeah, yeah. Let me finish. Me, when your Lord and Savior, okay. John Piper, when he's not encouraging women to stay in abusive relationships and get smacked around for the gospel, he's encouraging Christian hedonism. 
uh, you know, John of the Cross, Dark Knight of the Soul, all these things seem to be somewhat creative, but are you saying those are just illustrations and they're not creative theology? They're, they're, you, you, you know as well as I do, I'm trusting, Luke, that you know your Bible as well as I do. There is nothing new under the sun. There is no truth that's new under the sun. That's an Ecclesiastes. There, there, yeah. th- that's true. And there are times, there are times when we remind the world of truths that we've forgotten. Mm-hmm. That is different than creating new truth. And the, the reality is any of us that purport to be ultimate creatives in the sense that we are coming up with something that's ultimately new, I think that that is deceptive. Okay. And it's not our job. As Christians in particular, as somebody who believes in the history of the church, I mean, I believe in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, Jesus Christ, da, da, da. I mean, that... You know that, friends. It's not, friend. It's not our job to recreate that text. It's our job to be mm-hmm. faithful to it. So, what kind of creativity um, are you pushing against? I'm, I'm unbounded creativity, and that is this notion of <clears throat> that famous Richard Rorty line, where he says, "Truth is not found; it is made." Wait, that is what I'm against. Say that quote again. Truth is not found, it's made. Who said that? And I don't believe truth is made. Richard Rorty, the famous postmodern philosopher. Oh, okay. I do not believe in any way, shape, or form that we create truth. Okay. It is our job to find it, to discover it. It's not our job to create it. And the minute we create our own truth, we become orthodox unto ourselves. And by that I mean we can do whatever we so desire to do. Okay. What if the... And, and this, let's tie this in with your... Um... And how dare you call, try to get me to say that Henry Nouwen is a heretic? I'm just saying. I, uh, Henry, I'm just asking questions. Henry Nouwen, I appreciate that. But Henry Nouwen, um, I, I believe with all my heart that he'd be the first to say that he was merely describing the truth that he was encountering. He was not. He's creating. just merely a used car salesman, to use your metaphor. Mm. Okay. Now, you say progressive culture has sold the idea that we would be, do best to escape the past so that we might move boldly into the future. For instance, we're told that morality has progressed and evolved and become something of a different story in the 21st century. You want to say, nothing has changed. We are just better at hiding our sin, which is true, you know, except for, you know, like my worship leader who, you know, like 100 years ago, his family wouldn't exist because he's white and his wife's black. Um, So that, you know, except for them and except for, I guess, women who like are allowed to vote now, um, Mm-hmm. and uh, like getting rid of slavery. Uh, so like if we just mm-hmm. take, take those things off the table, we haven't progressed in any way that's a positive, right? No, yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I, Luke, you and I both know that in many respects, human, the human community has, um, has progressed in ways that honor God and honor the image of God. The fact that women can vote, the fact that slavery... Um, Slavery no longer exists as an institution in America, I celebrate. But we use that as a way to pat ourselves on the back to suggest that slavery no longer exists, when in reality, slavery is more prominent in our world today by virtue of um, the, the world capitalistic, the, the, the sort of globalized world has created a whole new context where slavery continues to exist in an even bigger way than it ever has, in my opinion. But before, I mean, it's, it's um, just morphed. We've tricked ourselves into thinking that we've eradicated the darkness 
of this world when anything but um, we still have as much abuse uh, and marginalization of women in our world today. Um, it's just, in my opinion, it's just shaped, hmm. changed its its shape and its mold. So uh, Taylor Deschardins stuff about, you know, the world's being pulled forward and that like the universe is, uh, you know, progressing. And we have this omega point that, you know, we're going towards. Mm-hmm. I, it sounds like you would disagree with that idea and say that nothing has changed. We're not progressing. We're not improving. It's just rearranged. Um, in a sense, I would say the notion that it's the 21st century, therefore we've somehow way, shape, or form have arrived, is complete hubris. Mm-hmm. We have as much darkness in the world as we have ever had. There's a great uh, philosopher at Princeton, was at Princeton, Diogenes Allen. He wrote a book called Quest. And in it, he talks about how in the enlightenment period, that even that phrase that we are enlightened, that light is within us, that we have arrived in some way, shape, or form. He talks about how that completely uh, ignores the fact that Jesus called himself the light of the world. How so? We, I do believe, because we've, we ultimately believe that we have become the lights of the but, world. And, and that goes flat in the face of the good news of Jesus. Doesn't Jesus say that uh, you, Jesus you, is, you are the light of the world? Like, don't hide it under a bushel? No, I'm going to let it shine. Yeah, so let me, Luke, I, I'm really curious. Do you have a theology of depravity? Do you have a theology of sin? Yeah, yeah, I, here's the thing. I, I think we're called to be the light of the world. I'm just responding to that. I, I don't think that we actually are progressed in a better sense now than we were decades before. I think that people look at those things and say there are things that are better now than they were. I agree with that. Without question, absolutely. But I, I would say that it just masked redi- mask differently and it's just a it's a the same content in a different package and i think your example yep. about um you know work conditions in third world countries and the fact that you know you have a shirt that you know you paid four dollars for because someone else we're all slave owners yeah absolutely if i shot there a hundred stores at the mall right now that if i bought their clothes i'm a, in a sense yeah no 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 I, I i'm not uh i'm I'm not critiquing that idea at all. I, I think that that's actually true. And I, ha- I struggle with this idea that there is, that, like, that things are getting better. I tend to think that is kind of like the postmodern experience, like, hey, we progressed so much, and then we dropped atomic bombs, and there's still a Holocaust. Like, we're, we're really mm. not mm. better. So I, I struggle with that, too. But I, I don't know if I want to say... Yeah, I, I just think you have to hold those things in tension, because obviously there are people who are better off now than they were before. Now... Without question. But I don't know if the fact that there's some really, really awful tragedies in the world, um, can you say that we're not progressing at all? Like, I feel like, I don't know. I, I just, I, I feel like I hold those intentions. Like, I don't have an answer for it. So I don't want to say that things are we, all better. Th- there is a societal, without question, there is a societal, um, there is a societal improvement in many respects. Do, do not do not mishear me. There's a great little book by a Jewish scholar named Simon Shemad, The Lands- Landscape and Memory. Have you Mm-mm. heard of this book? Wonderful little book on um, the greatest environmental movement in history. He, he describes um, the, the, this movement, which had started recycling. They got their kids out into the forest. They took care of their landscape more than anybody else. They, they were the, one of the first green in the modern period, green people. And it's completely heartbreaking. Simon Shema talks about how this is, it's, it was the third Reich. I mean, they were one of the very first oh, wow. environmentally friendly 
movements in the world. Now you've got, we can go, okay, what it, is environmentalism and care for creation and improvement? Absolutely. But the ones who did it perpetrated great evil and atrocity on the world. And you can say to me, yes, the world's improved. It's improved. Don't get me wrong. But the heart of who we are is still as dark as it has ever yeah. been. There's nothing in the world about the human heart and human condition that has changed. We can mask our human hearts with a society that looks wonderful and still be children of the devil in our Yeah. Heart. Okay, so one of the things that's consistent about the human heart that I think you in, that you communicate so well is that you say the human heart, when given a chance, would rather hear a, a TED Talk about God than actually know God. There's something in the heart that we want to hear about God without actually knowing God. You, you connect us to a, a parable by a Kierkegaard um, that people would rather go through a lecture about heaven than actually go through a door that says heaven. So what do you think it is about the human heart that makes us prefer to know about God than to actually know God? And maybe you could first of all start by describing the difference. Like what's the difference in knowing God and knowing about God? Well, yeah, I mean, maybe, the, you know, the difference about knowing, knowing about God and know, knowing God would be the difference between, um, would be the difference between Peter the Apostle and the demons who fled Jesus. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you look at the demons that, that were around Jesus, it's, it's really interesting, first of all, to consider they all believed in the existence of God. They all had phenomenal theology. Yeah. They were Trinitarians. They all, you know, had, had great theology. And they were even obedient to Jesus. They always did what Jesus yeah. said. Um, look at the life of Peter. His theology wasn't that good. Um, he had moments of wavering, and he was often disobedient. Yet Peter uh, walked with yeah. Jesus, and Jesus knew Jesus. Yeah, so the demons, like um, even the demons believe there's one God good. Okay, so that's what J- yeah, Jesus' yeah, yeah, yeah. brother so said. So what's the, what's the difference? The difference between the two is that, that Peter worshipped God, and, and the demons didn't. They submit, He submitted to God. And there, and there is a difference, a huge difference, between having great descriptions about knowing about mm-hmm. God and actually knowing God as, 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 a, as, a, as a person. Um, why is that? Why in the world do we, uh, do, do we love descriptions about God more than we love God? Because I think if we actually loved God for who God is, it would have a bearing on our life. We would actually start to need to act differently. And when the rubber meets the road, man, that's a whole commitment that I'm not entirely sure people want to no. make. Um, we can talk about carrying the cross as much as you want to talk about carrying the cross. But talking about carrying the cross is way different than carrying no. the cross. So someone who's listening to this podcast probably cares to know, uh, you know theological ideas. They want to wrestle with hard subjects. They want to engage with different uh, authors and intellectuals as they're you know, articulating God. And so this would definitely be an audience that has a propensity to, if they're not careful, to go down the like, know-about-God path. And so mm-hmm. say— We yeah, all yeah. do, yeah. Definitely. And so let's say I'm doing that. I'm spending all my time knowing about God. I'm learning interesting things. I'm learning things that are helping me shape my understanding of God. And I want to move from knowing about God to actually knowing God. What do you think, do, what yep. do you think the suggestion would be? Like, how would you, what would your Rx be for that? There, there's, a, there's an old African proverb that says, truth is merely a rumor until it lives in our muscles. Hmm. That's good. Um, we... Uh, we have an over-intellectualized education about God, and there is a great difference between we know, what we know about him and how we're faithful to him in, in submission and obedience. I would say start doing the stuff that you know, um, and, and, and once you've, we've started to actually start doing the stuff we know, then we can maybe know a little hmm. bit more. That's good. <clears throat> That's good. Well, AJ, it's been fun talking with you. 
Your new book mm. is entitled The Dusty Ones, Why Wandering Deepens Your Faith. It's available now, mm-hmm. bookstores across this fine country, and probably it's some really cool green things in Portland. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, without yeah. question. Yeah, I hope, I hope, uh, yeah, I'd love, I'd love uh, for your listeners to get the chance to, to read it and, uh, and reflect and respond in non-sarcastic ways non-sarca- you I've been non-sarcastic for a chunk. That was a totally non-sarcastic response. I was not being, res- you were being very Thank kind. You. you were docile in this conversation, uh, unlike other conversations that we had, and I'm very Well, for you know, that. as my frenemy from the Northwest, I, I worked really hard on this one, and um, I'm not saying my sarcasm is all my responsibility. I feel like part of that is is an environment that you create. So um, I feel like we made it through this one. And so when your new book comes out, okay. the next one, Velvet, Jesus, Prayer. Of- the Purpose-Driven Velvet Back of Jabez Like okay. Jesuits. We'll see if we can keep the sarcasm curtailed again. All right, man. It's been fun. Thanks for hey, checking thanks out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Take a job, Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on yeah. iTunes. You are now adjourned.